The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. We are spiritual beings having a human experience. Welcome to Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Get healthy and help animals. Welcome to Main Street Vegan with your host, Victoria Moran. If you overhear a conversation among vegan women, it might sound something like, wasn't it cool what Joaquin Phoenix said on the SAG Awards? And then that he left for a pig vigil. I love that. And I can hardly wait till Starbucks rolls out that whole line of vegan food all across the country. Oh, yeah. I'm still looking for a gynecologist who has a clue about the way I eat. Well, today on the Main Street Vegan program, you will meet two incredible OBGYNs who are both ethical vegans and whole food plant-based experts, too. This is gonna be good. (laughs) Hi, everybody. I'm Victoria Moran, your host for the Main Street Vegan Program. If you are new, please check out everything I'm up to at MainStreetVegan.net. You can subscribe there to our newsletter and our blog. There's also a Main Street Vegan listeners group on Facebook that we'd love to have you as part of. And if you're somebody who regularly enjoys this show, it would mean a lot if you would let people know at Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you like to listen because five-star ratings and positive reviews mean a whole lot. Thank you very, very much. And we are doing something different today. Rather than having one guest per segment, we're going to have a three-way conversation so that these two professional colleagues on different continents can bounce ideas off one another and you'll get the best possible information and the most of it. So I have two wonderful, amazing female medical doctors, experts on women's health and plant-based living scheduled for today. And I'm gonna start on the West Coast of the United States, introducing Dr. Deborah Shapiro. Deborah Shapiro, MD, is a board-certified OBGYN who's practiced more than 26 years. She is also a certified health coach, a graduate of Main Street Vegan Academy and the T. Colin Campbell Program in Plant-Based Nutrition. 
She has hundreds of hours of continuing medical education, and her coaching practice attracts people who are interested in making a permanent switch to a whole food plant-based diet, reversing chronic disease, and getting off unnecessary medications. Welcome, Deborah. Hello. Thank you so much, Victoria. This is such an honor to be on your show. I've really enjoyed listening to all of them so far. Thank you so much well, for having me. It's an honor to have you, and obviously I know you because yes. you did spend a week in my living room at I loved it. Academy. You're one of four medical doctors who've taken the program, so I'm so uh, proud of, of all of you. So I believe we're still connecting with me too. Let me see. Hello, me too, are you can you hear me? Yet? You are here. Fabulous. So let me go ahead and I introduce am. you, and then we can be um, three women talking health. Dr. Neetu Bajakal is a consultant OBGYN in London with 35 years experience in women's health, and she is one of the first U.S. board-certified lifestyle medicine physicians in the U.K. She's a passionate vegan and has personally benefited, as have her patients, from following a whole food plant-based diet. She runs a voluntary service, Women for Women's Health, set up to empower women to make better and more informed health choices. So welcome, doctors, Vajikal and Shapiro. Wonderful to have you on the program. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. Thank you for having us on. Hi, Niju. Uh, hello. <laughs> Hi, Deborah. <laughs> So when we were doing a little bit of, of pre-planning, uh, the two of you said that you wanted to do your own kind of vegan story intros, one coming more from the plant-based side, one more from the vegan side. So if you know who wants to be first, please start. Deborah, you want to go? Sure. Sure. Thank you very much. Well, this is always an evolution, right? Uh, we were I started out eating very poorly. Um, and I was raised on a lot of processed food, a lot of high fat food. And um, my mother really suffered from diabetes and then a brain tumor and died when I was when I was still quite young. So when I got to be about the age that she was when she got sick, when I got to be into my 50s, I started thinking more about what I was eating. And I don't remember exactly what I had what inspired me initially, I was starting to get off of meat and eating more fish. And then I saw a patient who had a miscarriage and she had mercury poisoning. And, and I checked my own mercury level and it was quite high. And that really started me thinking that what we ate had consequences to our health, even more than just thinking about the animals and thinking about and about the environment. But really, I started I started wondering more about what I was eating and putting into my own body after I got sick from mercury from fish. And it was actually a patient of mine who first told me about Farm Sanctuary. And I, I, I visited and I was quite moved by the plight of farm animals. And I, I really developed a sort of a, you know, a, a bigger worldview of, uh, of compassion and in, enlarging my, uh, my circle of compassion to all animals. And then that same patient told me about Michael Greger's work and nutritionfacts.org. And so I then everything just sort of coalesced or came together into this, this whole of understanding of the plant-based nutrition, both from uh, a human health standpoint, the environmental health standpoint, and also the animals. And I, and I made the transition myself and then decided it was very difficult in the small amount of time that I had with my patients in private practice to make a very big difference in their lives. 
well, I tried very often, but I, uh, and especially when I worked at Kaiser, it was very difficult. It was such a short period of time. So I became a health coach. And I first, you know, coming to your to your program was just a fantastic experience and, and listening to you always. And um, and then I, I learned more about coaching and now I have a, a coaching program. So. Cool. Love that story. That and, really and you were out in the San Francisco Bay Area. So me yes. uh, too. You're up next. Yes. Um, I actually was born a vegetarian. I was a vegetarian most of my life. Occasionally, uh, out of curiosity, uh, tried some chicken when I grew up in India in my friend's house. It's much to my mother's dismay because she was an ethical vegetarian. And I didn't really think about it at that stage. I um, was vegetarian because that's how my parents were. Uh, not for religious reasons, but um, for ethical reasons. And I then moved to the UK and saw a couple of programs um, when I was pregnant with my second daughter and became completely vegetarian overnight. Still hadn't made the link uh, between uh, dairy and, um, you know, animal um, suffering because I was vegetarian because of animals. And until my daughter came home and she was my younger daughter, she was about nine. And uh, she said, Mommy, you're going to feed me my dog next. And I said, no, I'm not. Uh, and um, she said, you just gave me sausages. Uh, and so I was vegetarian myself, but I was giving my children, um, you know, on occasions of fish fingers and sausages. I never cooked it myself, but I used to let them have it. So anyway, she got me thinking. And at the same time, um, it was quite interesting. I had I was going through a very early menopause at the age of 38, what is known as premature ovarian failure. I didn't know it. Doc doctors tend to be terrible. Uh, you know, we never acknowledge any of our health problems. So I thought I was stressed. And I then soon realized that actually I was going through an early menopause. Nobody in my family had ever been through something like that. So I wasn't really prepared for all the symptoms of menopause at that age. I was a busy, uh, you know, doctor with young children. Anyway, to cut a long story short, she turned vegan. I thought I need to support her. So I, I became vegan too. I immediately got the, um, what she was trying to say. But very interestingly, within three months of changing what, how I was eating, I noticed huge changes in how I was feeling. I was just about to go on hormone replacement and Becoming vegan meant that I wasn't going to necessarily go down that route, even though I would prescribe it for my patients. Um, but just changing the way I ate really made a huge difference. I still struggle, though, of making that connection with food and medicine um, because and health, because we were never taught that in medical school, you see. And it took me several years to put two and two together. And it was only about 10, 15 years ago that... I started look, realizing the power of food and started bringing it into my patient practice because as a surgeon, I was making people better, but not, I didn't prevent problems. I was sorting them out after they had the problems, you see? So I realized that food and lifestyle medicine was such a powerful tool because most of what we see are lifestyle diseases. And I got quite upset and angry because I felt I should have been taught this in medical school. And so now I've made it my mission to, you know, talk to medical students and to my trainees and to anybody who's actually willing to listen 
And so thank you, Victoria, for inviting me. I love these stories. You know, it doesn't matter where we start out, we end up at the same place, and it's so great to be here. So um, as I'm sure you're both aware, women want gynecologists in particular, of all their healthcare providers, who really understand them, who really listen to them. And so we really need to get more plant-based and, and vegan doctors in this specialty. So why did you choose this one, either one of you? Why did, we why did I choose? Uh, gynecology. Oh, this is definitely the best specialty. You know, in, in America, I don't know if you have the this, this same recommendations, and we've talked briefly, need to, about this, but in America, we have this annual exam that we, that I think for a lot of women, it's, it's almost a sacred time, right? You go for your annual exam and you spend this time with your OBGYN. And I've developed, you know, in 24 years of when I was in private practice, I've seen the same patients over and over again and really getting to be part of their lives. And I delivered their babies. Sometimes I delivered their grandchildren. So being, I was there when they had miscarriages. I was there when they need surgeries. I was there, you know, to manage birth control. So, and, and, and difficulties with spouses and marriages and divorces. So, so it is the best specialty because you do primary care for women and you do, and you can do surgery and save lives. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I rushed in to do, you know, a surgery that would be life-saving and which was exhilarating and wonderful, frightening too, but wonderful. And then also you get to deliver babies and, and there's nothing, really nothing that compares to being in that room when you're bringing a new life into the world. There's just, it just isn't, there's incredible high, incredible high. So it is the, the most wonderful and satisfying specialty that I can imagine for those three reasons. Wow. So uh, Dr. Bejikal, while we're talking about babies, Talk to us a little bit about diet and how that relates to fertility, pregnancy, breastfeeding. Yes, uh, actually, you know, people often think that women's health is something different. You know, we get the same diseases that um, men get. Heart disease is actually more common in women than men. Uh, but also, um, women's health starts, you know, right from the time you're inside your mother's womb. So really, at every stage of our lives, we are particularly susceptible to problems. And so um, when you have somebody who's pregnant, they're in a very vulnerable situation. They want to know the best for themselves and for their baby. And if the um, health provider is not aware that actually there is a lot of um, advice that can be given, which is very, very sensible, simple things about exercise, about food, uh, because there's so much of confusion out there. And we do know that whether you're pregnant, whether you're wanting to be pregnant, whether you're having fertility issues, whether you're menopausal, whether you're a man, the closer you move to eating plants, the closer you move to eating a whole food plant-based diet, then the optimal, the more optimal your pregnancy outcome will be, the more optimal your overall health will be. You know, nobody has to be 100% uh, plants only, but obviously, because we don't have the studies for that uh, in, in huge numbers, but what we do know is that vegans tend to have lower incidence of blood pressure problems in pregnancy, lower incidence of diabetes. They tend to do better with regards to things like endometriosis, which can affect fertility. So really, at every stage of life, whether you, are, you have 
a, a small uh, daughter or a baby. Uh, there is nothing like adopting the right sort of nutrition, exercise, stress levels. All these things play a huge role. So at every stage, um, you know, women can benefit from um, doing the right thing and getting the right advice from, from health professionals. And often they don't. Well, that was going to be my next question, because the one time that I know that adults really get flack about being vegan yes. is when they're pregnant or looking to become pregnant. Knowing everything that you just said, how can that possibly be? So the problem is there's a lot of confusion that is often misrepresented in the media. Doctors are not taught nutrition. So when we are not taught nutrition, we are reliant on the same sources that our patients are. So they read um, magazines or newspapers that may not have the whole truth. They don't, everybody will agree that fruits and vegetables are fine. But what they forget is there are large swaths of countries that actually have uh, women who are pregnant and are vegetarian or often uh, you know, plant-based mostly. And they have absolutely no problems with fertility, uh, with body weight uh, uh, issues or with pregnancies. However, because the information is not out there, there is confusion. And when there's confusion, then all kinds of diets come in, all kinds of advice comes in. And as a result, the truth often gets buried. That's what I have found uh, amongst my colleagues, amongst uh, professionals. It's just there is confusion. That's what there is. And obviously among lay people as, as well. So does either of you know anything about sexual pleasure in women? I mean, we've seen the preliminary studies. I know they're working on a big study to look at erectile dysfunction and a dietary component in, yes. in men. Are women happier in bed if they're plant-based? Mm -hmm. I don't know if there are any studies about this. Do you do you know Nietzsche? But in general, you know, your energy level is going to be better. The blood supply to your genital organs is going to be improved just as it is with men. Um, and you're going to have increased serotonin and, and and dopamine and just feel happier as well when you have healthier gut bacteria that are creating these, these neurotransmitters. Uh, um, so between all of that, I would I would think that it would make um, sexual pleasure that much that much better. But um, what do you think, Nitu? I, I would agree. I'm not aware of any studies, and I will certainly go away and look at this because this is interesting. But what I do know is that there are a lot of uh, female health conditions that really stop us from enjoying sex, one of them being endometriosis. Endometriosis is a condition where the lining of the womb or the endometrium grows outside and can cause quite a lot of discomfort and pain, making people not want to have sex because it's painful. And that, of course, has other uh, repercussions like fertility. But just having the, you know, sex as often as somebody who doesn't have this condition can be a big factor. So endometriosis, which we know responds very well to a whole food plant-based way of eating, even a condition called polycystic ovarian syndrome, it's often associated with anxiety and depression and difficulty with sleep, uh, with sleep problems, menopause, all these things where improve on, on a plant-based diet. So when they do, you would the natural corollary would be that you would expect that 
sexual pleasure and intercourse, when it becomes not so painful and uncomfortable, is, is more pleasurable. But I don't know of any um, randomized trials or studies. I don't know if they can be done, actually. But yes, uh, I certainly don't know officially of any. Okay. So let, let's just move on to menopause. You did talk uh, about that, Nitu, that um, experiencing the, the early menopause. But for people coming to that time of life uh, at the regular age or another 51. age, yeah. any, any studies, any um, stories, anything that uh, we should know about that? Yes, I mean, definitely with, with menopause. The menopause is an official term when you've stopped having periods for a whole year. That's when somebody is going through the menopause and a year afterwards when you've not had any more periods for no other reason, you're not pregnant, you don't have stress, anxiety, any of that. You've actually stopped your periods because your ovaries have stopped functioning. That is known as menopause and postmenopause is after that. The average age all over the world is about 51. But actually menopausal symptoms or perimenopause, these start you know, as much as eight years before. So women in their 40s may be experiencing hormonal fluctuations and hot flushes and difficulty with sleep and mood changes and skin dryness and vaginal dryness, but actually their hormone levels may not show that. And so there are studies to show that women in Japan, for example, have only 20% incidence of hot flushes compared to 75 to 80% of women in the US. Uh, only 10% of Chinese women historically have hot flushes. Now, it may be that they don't come up and tell us and they're shy to talk about it, but actually that's not what all our studies show. Our studies show that eight out of 10 women in the UK, and I'm sure it's the same in the US, they feel shy and they don't talk about their symptoms. Only, you know, a couple of women, two out of 10 women will actually come up and say, doctor, I'm suffering, I can't sleep, I'm having hot flushes, my relationship is breaking down. So even in this countries, we are, these countries, we are actually struggling to talk about it. But what we do know is that the Southeast East Asian countries, we think because of their soy um, intake, their isoflavone intake, the miso, the natto, the seaweed, their lifestyles, all these tend to really actually not have that crash of estrogen that causes the hot flushes which we see in the Western world. Well, you know that we did have a request from a listener that I ask you about someone who went through menopause 10 years ago, but now seems to be having a lot of the menopausal symptoms all over again, hot flashes, weight gain, and an inability to lose that weight, even with a whole food plant-based diet and an active lifestyle. Anybody have any thoughts on that? So she hasn't resumed bleeding, right? No. She had she's gone the whole 10 years without bleeding and, and symptoms coming back. Well, I certainly want to make sure that other hormone levels were normal, like her thyroid um, was, was um, still functioning normally. Hmm. Uh, yes, I, I think that one does need to look for other reasons. Did she, you know, how old she is? What actually happened 10 years before? Was it a traumatic incident? Was there stress? Uh, was there another medical condition completely? Because really to have stopped periods 10 years ago and then to have a recurrence of symptoms now, is she on some particular medications that can actually give you 
hot flushes or make you put on weight. So she definitely needs a very detailed um, medical workup because, you know, help is available. It just needs to be, you know, just because somebody's on a whole food plant-based diet doesn't mean they can't have any symptoms. They may. And so, you know, that's what the beauty about lifestyle medicine is. It, it's not isolated from Western medicine. You know, it works hand in hand. It just means that with plant-based diets and things, the woman or the man is actually in the driving position. They can make the changes themselves. But there will be situations where they need to, you know, see a doctor and have treatment, sometimes surgery, sometimes medication. So um, this lady certainly needs a a very thorough discussion uh, so that she can be guided and, and help provided, actually. Oh. Actually, so, there are also even supplements, you know, like niacin supplements that can cause hot flashes. So I don't know yeah. whether she started taking some, some different supplements as well. Um, so This is why we need more lifetime medicine, do- lifestyle <laughs> medicine doctors. So we've just got uh, two minutes left in this segment, but I do want to switch to an earlier time of life. Um, the the menarche the uh, uh, the I'm yeah. sorry yeah and the, the beginning yeah. of, of puberty and, and that particularly for young girls and you mentioned uh, Nitu soy and and good things about soy and yet out in the world you hear soy makes children mature more quickly soy makes men have breasts mm. oh mm. okay <laughs> let's start on that and after the break we'll finish yeah. it anybody take it who's excited about this. I'm well, very excited about it, but Deborah, you can go. Okay. And I can well, it, on it turns out that uh, in the breast, as an example, because people are always worried about soy and breast health. I know we were starting to talk about about the menarche, but let's just start with breast health. That there are actually two receptors for estrogen in the breast. There's an alpha receptor and a beta receptor, and it turns out that soy actually fits in the beta receptor, which actually uh, down regulates growth, whereas dairy estrogens and our own estrogens, so mammalian estrogen sits in the alpha receptor. So it's very different. Uh, These two receptors, one promotes growth and the other sort of downregulates it. So uh, that's one way that soy is actually protective against breast cancer. It it acts like a selective estrogen receptor modulator, a CIRM, like tamoxifen, something you would take even if you had breast cancer. It also works um, we're still talking about breast cancer, um, just if we could. Um, it also works as a um, to help with DNA repair, to upregulate the genes that, that work for DNA repair. So, for example, when people have... We lost you, Deborah. Oh. Uh, well, we're, we're coming up to break, so... Um... Yeah, it's very well, exciting, Victoria. I mean, soy is a really exciting and a topic that has had about 40,000 studies. And there's a lot that of myths that need to be dispelled. And so certainly we should do that after the break. It is as, really, really important. As yes. soon as we come back, we will blast those myths. <laughs> Thanks, everybody, <laughs> Thank for being part of the Main Street Vegan program. Stay with us through these breaks. And we'll be back with more. Experience the difference. Unity Online Radio. the voice of an awakening world. 
Welcome back to Main Street Vegan with your host, Victoria Moran. Hello, vegans and pre-vegans and veg-curious people and Unity folks and Unity online radio listeners. Welcome to each and every one of you uh, who has found your way to this program. As I believe you're aware, our program is presented by Unity Online Radio, which is located at Unity Village. That's just outside Kansas City, Missouri. It's the extraordinarily beautiful headquarters of the Unity Movement, which is a very open-minded and eclectic religious organization founded in 1892 by a couple of deeply committed vegetarians. So it is fitting that the very first vegan spirituality forum and retreat will take place at Unity Village, Missouri, September 10 through 13, 2020. So if you are someone who identifies as religious or spiritual of any tradition, please check out the event at thespiritualforum.org. They are co-sponsoring the retreat with In Defense of Animals. Dr. Will Tuttle, Dr. Lisa Kemmerer, Dr. Milton Mills, and myself will all be there to present. And there will also be a lot of time devoted to input from participants and how we can carry this this life-promoting message of vegan living to people in our spiritual communities. So that is thespiritualforum.org. Cost for registration and accommodations is being kept really low, and early bird registration is available until January 31. So if you can commit quickly, you will save some money. Now, let us get back to our brilliant and fascinating guests, Deborah Shapiro, MD, and Nitu Bejakal, MD. And we were talking about soy and um and maturation in, in young women and cancer and Deborah finish up me too carry on. Thank you, thank you. You know, I I skipped over the maturation because it is interesting. I've heard people say uh, that aren't children now developing so much so much earlier, and they're I see kids are getting you know they're having their periods at age eight. And I, I did do some research about this, and I, what I found, Nita, you could see if you. You can see if, say if you agree or disagree, but it seems like there's been more of a disconnect between when, when girls are getting their first breast buds, like puberty, and when they actually get their period. So the, the change in when they're actually in menarche, when they're actually getting their first period, isn't that huge. It's not like we've gone from, you know, 13 down to eight, but maybe, you know, maybe 12 to 11 and in African-Americans, actually, it's a greater difference. They're getting them a little bit earlier. But but the real difference is that we are seeing much younger girls developing breast buds. So there's this more of a disconnect between uh, the age of puberty and the age of menarche. And that's what I had read. Is, is, Nitu had, did, is that what you had read yeah, as well? I would, agree, I would agree with that, definitely. Uh, and what I would say is that... Um, People often think that soya is this uh, magic bean. Uh, it is a magic bean in many ways, but what it contains is not unique to the soybean. You know, it has isoflavones, but it's not only isoflavones. They're basically isoflavones are plant estrogens, phytoestrogens that have weak actions like estrogens, but also has blocking actions. And that's the beauty about chickpeas and red clover and many of the lentils and soybean has a little bit more of that and as Deborah was saying it does work more on the beta receptor of estrogen so 
when young children actually eat soy, we know both boys and girls, they actually reduce their risk of getting breast cancer or prostate cancer for the future because of the way it works on the breasts and on the bones and on various other tissues that actually it is a protective effect rather than a harmful effect. Nobody will come to any harm, including people, who women who have breast cancer. So if you want to reduce your risk of breast cancer, one should be having a couple of portions of minimally processed soya in a day. And if you do are unfortunate enough to get a diagnosis of breast cancer, we know that uh, there's a 30% reduction of dying from breast cancer if you have soya as part of a varied plant-based diet. So it is really important to understand that the phytoestrogens or the plant estrogens don't behave like the mammalian estrogen that is available from our body fat, which produces most of our estrogen, or from uh, estrogen that comes through animal sources. So menarche is, may remain slightly, become slightly earlier because of better nutrition and things like that. But certainly soya is protective in children. And even if you have a thyroid condition, Soya doesn't need to be limited to anything. You still should be eating the two portions. It's not going to have an effect. You just need to have your thyroid checked like everybody else who has a problem every six months or so. So I just want people to understand that one does not need to be scared of, of soya. If you don't like it or you're allergic to it, that's a different matter. But otherwise, there should be no reason to cut it out of your diet. In fact, there's every reason to bring it into your diet, whether you have a small son or a daughter or for you yourself or for your mother or you, for your father, everybody can have it. It reduces risk and it promotes health. Right. Yes. And it's just sad that doctors are still seem to be promoting this idea that soy is somehow dangerous. I can't tell you how many times, and you probably, I don't know if it's the same thing in, yes, across the, the pond. Don't but have soya. Don't, especially if they have breast cancer. But I just wanted to say that uh, both, I think women were probably aware of these selective estrogen receptor modulators or things like tamoxifen that people take when, they're, when they have breast cancer. And, and actually, so the soy phytoestrogens act, act like that not only by sitting in the beta receptor, but they also increase um, the, the genes that, that promote DNA repair and prevent recurrence that way and also help if you do have the BRCA mutation. And they also works, work as a, an aromatase inhibitor. And this is, people probably also may be familiar with drugs like Arimidex that people take when they have breast cancer that actually um, helps to lower the, the circulating estrogens uh, by inhibiting this this hormone, this um, enzyme that takes androgens to estrogens. So it's another way that you're actually going to reduce the risk of a recurrence and and reduce the risk of breast cancer if you have more soy. Two, I agree with her, with Dr. Uh, with Nitu, absolutely, that two whole soy products a day would be excellent. And the earlier, the better yes. for children. And, and the important thing to understand, people are often confused about what a portion is. A portion is what fits into your hand, and that's really small. We're talking about a small handful, 80 grams. So if you have a child, their hand is very small, so it'll be even less than that. So a, a, an apple is a portion for an adult, and a couple of slices of apple is a portion for a child. So it's just based on that. The mm -hmm. other important thing is 80 to 90% of the soya that is produced in this world is actually produced, which is genetically modified and is produced for feeding um, for animal agriculture, while only about 6% of the soy that is 
produce is for human consumption. So all the rainforests that are being burned down is actually not for human consumption of soy. Instead, it is for feeding, um, you know, the animals that we then consume. So it's important to understand that it's also used for fuel, but really it's only 6% and it's not the genetically modified. So if you're going to have soy, try and opt for the organic version, the unsweetened version of soy milk and edamame beans, miso, natto, tofu, tempeh. These are all great sources that you know people can enjoy and learn different things. But if you don't like it, that's a different matter. Well, tempeh for dinner for me. <laughs> so thank you <laughs> yes. both on that. So, um, Deborah, I know that a particular interest of yours is epigenetics. So if you could give us uh, an elementary <laughs> definition <laughs> of what that is and also tell us a little bit about what happened during that Canadian ice storm. Oh, fantastic. Thank you. Yes, this is something very, very new. We were not talking about it in medical school. I graduated medical school in 1989. And really, the idea of epigenetics in the, uh, really only in the came to be understood and still being understood um, and being studied was in the 90s, so the end of the last century. But the idea of epigenetics, actually, epigenetics actually means on top of the genome. And if you remember from when you were studying genetics in high school, that every one of your nucleated cells has the same DNA, the same chromosomes, the 46 chromosomes, um, and they they encode, but with these base pairs, really everything that happens in your body, everything that you are, you know, your blood type, your eye color, all of that. And and you get you get one chromosome from one parent and one from the other, and you have, and there you are, the full complement. But it turns out that even though every cell has the same genetic material, the same base pairs, what actually gets expressed in those cells is very tightly controlled. And here's an example. You know, your salivary glands make saliva, right? They have, they know how to make saliva. But in your stomach, those cells are making hydrochloric acid. Very, very different. Now, both cell, both uh, cells have all the have all the genetic material to be able to make both those things. But can you imagine if they got confused? What if you were making hydrochloric acid in your mouth? You know, you would not be very popular as a as a lover, right? So, um, so this is important to understand about gene expression. And what we what we figured out, what we what we now know is that your diet and your lifestyle and your stress and your exercise, all of this affects the expression of your genes. And actually, I th I, one of the earlier experiments on humans was or acknowledgments of this was with Dean Ornish when he was reversing early stage prostate cancer yeah. because he took you know 98 men I think he divided, divided them into with early stage prostate cancer divided them into two groups one group had a low fat plant-based diet 11 percent fat they did exercise 30 minutes six days a week of walking they had stress reduction yoga or meditation and this plant-based diet and after a year all the men that were on the um, in the study group had a reduction in their PSA, the prostate specific antigen. Um, and the men who were in the, who were just doing what their doctors told them to do, actually a, a number of them, actually I think six of them needed, needed surgery, needed, uh, needed procedures. But more than that, what was really extraordinary was what he found after just, after just three months, three months, not even the year, but after three months, he found that over 500 genes changed expression. He had over 400 over 450 genes that promote cancer were downregulated. Things like the the RAS oncogene and things that I had even heard about in medical school, and and over 40 genes that protect against cancer. The, the 
the tumor suppressor genes, the natural killer genes, natural killer cell genes were down, I'm sorry, were upregulated. So this was extraordinary. And that was just after three months. When you were asking about Project Ice Storm, and I, I welcome people to look this up. It was amazing. So in 1998, there was a huge ice storm in Quebec. And I think there was, you know, no power for 40 days, tremendous stress. People were, were uh, exposed to tremendous cold and uh, so tremendous social upheaval and stress. And research decided, researchers decided to study the offspring of women who were pregnant during that time. And they were able to divide them up into uh, different levels of stress, both perceived stress and actual stress. And what they found was that there were, well, first, hundreds of genes also changed expression. These were genes that coded for things like immunoglobulins and genes for glucocorticoids. So you could see that the offspring of children were, of children who experienced more stress were going to be dealing with stress differently and dealing with even having a different immune system their whole lives. And there was also more autism in women who experienced more stress in the offspring of women who experienced more stress, more autoimmune disease and more metabolic disease. And, and, and this is just, when you think about it, when you think about how important it is, the milieu that the baby is developing in, not only for your, for this child, but you know, the germ cells are developing inside the child that's developing inside your, inside the uterus. So we're really affecting future generations as well. You know, what happened to my mother when she was inside my grandmother had an effect on who I am. And that's epigenetics. Yes. Wow, that's exciting. Anything to add, Nitu? No, this has been also shown, uh, you know, after the war when they found that uh, starvation then resulted in the way epigenetics worked, the, the grand uh, or the offspring, the grandchildren had a higher chance of being uh, overweight and obese. So epigenetics is fascinating and we shouldn't underestimate it at all uh, for effects, you know, that can be seen into the far future. So how you eat today will have a big effect on what happens for the future generations. So it is fascinating. Deborah was absolutely, that story of the Canadian ice storm is really quite an eye opener. Yes. Uh, so it, it just makes us feel like we have more power, you know, more, more say over our own lives and even our children. So I, I promised that we were going to do a kind of ask the OBGYN quiz show. <laughs> this is going to throw out some of these conditions that, that women deal with or, or worry about. And either of you, both of you, just fairly quick answers and maybe some guidance for somebody who's, who's dealing with this. How about something I hear about every day, including ads in the New York City subways, fibroids? Yes. Mm. So well. fibroids are particularly common in women of color. Uh, and we don't know what, what the background is. But what we do know is whatever your, the, your color, you can actually reduce the, uh, the size of fibroids or increase the size of fibroids with what you eat and what you drink. So we know women who drink alcohol, especially if they drink beer, they have an uh, increase in the size of fibroids. Women who drink green tea seem to reduce their size of fibroids. Women who eat red meat seem to increase their size of fibroids. Fibroids are lumps of muscle, benign growths. So, you know, the more fruits and vegetables you eat, you tend to have a reduction in size. So essentially coming back again, what you eat, you are what you eat. And fibroids can actually 
be influenced by this, just like periods can and endometriosis can and polycystic ovarian syndrome and menopause. Well, and they're fed by estrogen, right? So yes, getting rid of dairy. Dependent, right. They're yes. estrogen dependent tumors. So basically, just like breast cancer, fibroids, um, adenomyosis, endometriosis, these are all estrogen fuel conditions. That's why weight loss helps with all these uh, situations where you can actually have an improvement in your symptoms as well as in, actual, in the actual condition itself. How about a bone health, osteopenia and osteoporosis? Well, it's interesting because studies have shown that in countries where they have uh, the most dairy, they actually suffer from the We lost you again, Deborah. So what do you want to say? They actually... Oh, there you are. They... Hello? We, oh, we missed about 10 seconds. Please back okay. up just a bit, Deborah. Yes. Um, there was a huge study out of Sweden that was looking at over 100,000 women. And when women had more than three milk products a day, they had not only more fractures, but more death from all cause than when women compared to women who had less than one milk product a day. And I know they used to say that, that actually animal protein would leach calcium from your bones. I remember hearing that a lot and maybe even saying that, but that may not be entirely true. We may not know exactly why, but we know that animal protein is not good for bone health. Uh, you may just, it doesn't exactly leach calcium from the bones, but it's not good for bone health. It's certainly not good for, for kidney health as well. And that may be one reason. Um, but much more important if you want to keep your bones strong is to exercise them. My father actually used to say when he saw me lying on the couch watching TV after school, get off the couch and start, you know, if you don't use your legs, they're going to fall off. And I think in some ways it's sort of true. And I know Dr. Clapper always talks about, um, you know, that, that osteoporosis is not a disease of calcium deficiency. It just isn't. It's about exercising. So he always talks about putting on a weighted vest and going out and going for a walk. And so using your bones and your muscles is probably the best way to maintain your bones and getting adequate calcium. And there was a study of vegans I think this came from Epic Oxford, actually. And when they saw, yes. they actually saw that, that vegan women had, or vegans had less, had lower calcium levels, but if they had at least 525 milligrams of calcium, now, you know, they rec we recommend a thousand milligrams of calcium a day, but when vegans who in general are eating um, a less acidic diet, when, when, when vegans have at least 525 milligrams of calcium a day, they seem not to suffer from more fractures. So that is important. And, and calcium is a nutrient of concern for vegans. So the important thing to remember about calcium is that it's available in most foods. It's actually drawn out from the soil. So taking calcium supplements actually can be detrimental. We know that from studies, that taking a calcium supplement can actually increase your chance of having an uh, infarction or a heart attack. So you're better off getting your calcium from sesame seeds and green leafy vegetables. Two dried figs give you all the calcium that you want. But also for bone health, one has to be very careful about you know, the, the thieves that actually dissolve your bones or, or, um, dis or they steal the calcium. So salt, excessive salt in your diet, excessive sugar, excessive alcohol and coffee. These are things that are not great for your bone health. So exercise 150 minutes per week, which is roughly about half an hour, ideally an hour a day. Uh, but you want to include two times of weight resistance training in a week of you know, exercising every muscle group for about 10, 15 minutes, not very long, but it's very important, especially if you're quite small built, then having like a vest that is actually weighted 
or little weights on your uh, on your ends of your wrists or uh, on your ankles will actually give you that what Deborah was saying, exercise, but with the increased bone mass because of the fact that even skipping and things do actually help because that's how you build bone rather than lose bone because we all start losing bone and muscle by after the age of 30. So you want to prevent because falls are one of the big reasons. It's one of the three causes of women dying, you know, hip fractures, cancers, and, and of course, you know, heart disease and, and things. So it's really important that we look after our bones and our muscles. So working out is really important and weight strengthening exercises for our muscles is especially important. Yes. Then let's touch on, on those uh, cancers. Basically what we think of as women's cancers, uh, breast, uh, ovarian, what can we do to prevent those? Well, for breast yes. cancer, we did talk about, we did talk about soy. And if you can start your children out um, drinking soy milk instead of getting into dairy and avoiding dairy, I think you're really going to significantly reduce this. And I think it's something like a 60% reduction in later breast cancer when children, very young girls are started on soy. So it's not something that you necessarily just want to sort of pick up when you're 50, although it's never too late, but really the most benefit you're going to see is when you start girls out young. So that would be one thing. Uh, for for you, what are the risk factors for uterine cancer is having polycystic ovarian syndrome and this constant, this anovulation where you constantly are exposing the uterus to estrogen that's not, that's, are, can you still hear me? Yes. Okay. That's not being opposed by progesterone. So I would say anything that would re reverse polycystic ovarian syndrome, like a plant-based diet, but also removing things um, like advanced glycation end products that are found when in, in animal products, but also when foods, even plant-based foods are broiled and, and charred and cooked at high temperature. So um, so reducing AGEs would also reduce the, um, the, the risk and maybe even help redu reverse polycystic ovarian syndrome and re re reduce the risk of uterine cancer. And Nitu, do you want to talk about ovarian yeah. cancer? Yeah. So basically what I want to say is, you know, lifestyle cancers, bowel, breast, ovarian, endometrial, they all benefit from four things. If your listeners want to remember four things they, to reduce cancer, lifestyle cancers, one is to be to try and achieve a normal body weight. We know that obesity it fuels cancer like nothing else, okay? So being a normal weight, avoiding alcohol, exercising regularly, and I mean 150 minutes at least per week, and eating mostly plant-based or only plants diet will be the four things that one can do. Keeping a normal weight, avoiding alcohol, and smoking and risky substances, Exercising regularly, eating plants are the four things one can do to reduce ovarian cancer, endometrial cancer, lung cancer, you name it, <laughs> bowel cancer, breast cancer. So it's just, it's simple. Eat the right foods, move naturally, avoid risky substances, have a sense of community, reduce your stress levels, identify the stress levels, do the things that you can within your control and what you can't learn to let go. I agree. That, Absolutely. That's beautiful. My gosh, yes. that's so, so valuable. So, um, Deborah, you have a new coaching program, the Pregnancy Advantage. Tell us quickly about that. Yes. Well, when I realized about the importance of epigenetics, I was thinking that it would be really wonderful if we could, if we could help produce healthier and smarter children in addition to just helping women be healthier themselves. So the Pregnancy Advantage is really aimed for women who are, who are thinking about getting pregnant, but in, in a 
in a, in a few years, it would be great to actually catch people even even five years before they want to have a baby, so that they can detox from chemicals that might have an influence on on the health of their child. You know, they're finding glyphosate, which need you mentioned because it's put on GMO soy, for example. Uh, they're finding glyphosate in the umbilical cords of babies, and that's a carcinogen. So you mean you know, kids are coming out already already exposed to toxins. So detoxing from, from toxins, getting to a healthy weight um, and eating a plant-based diet so that women can have healthier pregnancies um, and very and much healthier offspring. Smarter offspring as well, because they find that saturated fat actually decreases the IQ of babies. So, um, you know, when you think about where we are right now in the world and how, you know, if we could really make the whole population healthier, happier, and smarter, just think of what might be possible Whoa, a yeah. lot. <laughs> so how do we find out about this? Is there a website yet? Um, it's just started. You can look first on, you could um, look on my website, which is a newviewoffood.com. Um, there's also a Facebook page, The Pregnancy Advantage, and Gene um, Schumacher's page, which is, um, hmm, so Gene, Sch- okay, thank we're, you. We're close enough. It's coming up. If you want to let us know, we can put more in the show notes at MainStreetVegan.net, where we will uh, offer as much information about both of these amazing physicians as possible. Me too. In our last, just less than a minute, what should we know? Um, So if you want to reach out to me, um, I have lots of updated uh, latest information leaflets on every possible gynecological condition you want to know about. It's called nitubajekal.com, N-I-T-U-B-A-J-E-K-A-L.com, or you can find me on Instagram at Dr. Nitu Bajikal. But all I want to uh, tell your listeners is thank you for listening in, and hopefully uh, you will adopt some of the information that we have discussed and lead a very healthy, happy, and contented life. Well, I am a healthy, happy, and contented host. You've both been wonderful, wonderful guests. This was a fabulous hour. Thanks to Unity Online Radio, and thanks to you, the listener. We'll be back next week with Dr. Neil Barnard. Stay Ooh, that's exciting. Join us then. Thanks for listening. This is Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. We spend a third of our lives sleeping and dreaming, yet most of us have no idea what goes on during that time. I'm Kelly Sullivan Walden, and as a dream expert and best-selling author, I'm here to empower you to mine the gold from your nighttime dreams. Join me on the Kelly Sullivan Walden Show, part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network, available wherever you get your podcasts. Until we meet again, don't take your dreams lying down.